It's episodes like this one that remind me why I started the Napping Wizard sessions. If we consider the artist a wizard and me as an artist, well, then sometimes wizards need to take naps. And one way that I take breaks from my own artistic practice is by stepping outside of myself to explore in a deep way the artistic and intellectual work of my friends and other people who inspire me. This is David Colosi with another one. In this episode, I'll be playing the music of a friend of mine, Marie Duprat. Normally, for a show like this, I'd do an interview and let Marie tell you about her music herself. But since she lives in Paris and I live in New York, I'm trying something else. We could have done this via Skype, but that lacks the intimacy of a live conversation, and frankly, I like the challenge of talking about my friend's work. It sort of thrusts me out on a limb and gives her and you a chance to view it from an outsider's point of view. The other factor here is that while I was producing this episode, Marie was due to have her second child. Her daughter, who was a little impatient, showed up before I could finish this. So adding another task to her to-do list right now isn't the way to go. Ever since we met in 2014 at the FRAC in Rennes, France, we've been helping each other out. She translated my book, Letters to Polly, into French. I've been trying to help her place her collaborative piece, Never Mind the Words, which is about the only onstage encounter between Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. While she's running into walls trying to find a publisher for our book, I've never been able to find an American publisher, I've been stymied in finding a venue for her production. Considering how long these things take, I wanted to do something for her that could happen without her waiting, and that could appear around the same time as her new daughter. So this all started when we were both artists in residence at Le Centre du Monde on the French island of Belle-Île-en-Mer, run by our mutual friend, the artist Erwan Maheo. I spent my time on Belle-Île playing the saxophone to farm animals in various architectural structures, and Marie, well, this show will tell you what she did there. It turns out that our time spent on the island, though four years apart, she in June 2006 and me in October 2010, had many parallels that united our mental states, our relation to synesthesia, and our translation of the island and our experience into musical formats. I'm going to walk you through her suite titled Variations Kervilauen. Kervilauen is the name of the small town on Belle-Ile where we lived. I'll give an introduction to each song and then play it. But if you want to hear the entire suite first, or after, without my interruptions, I'm including a part two to this episode where I'll play all ten variations without interruption. You can go there now if you like, or go there after. I won't be offended either way. This is about her music and how she made it. So I won't give a long introduction for Marie here, I'll just give the basics. She studied music at Genevieve Conservatory and then philosophy at the Sorbonne. Then sidestepping an academic career, she took a job at France Musique, conducting interviews dedicated to jazz and classical music. After 10 years immersing herself in the work of others, 
she quit that job and took a self-imposed sabbatical to return to her own musical and literary work. She's participated in several collaborative pieces besides the one about Chaplin and Keaton, including work in Rome with the Cabaret Hypochondriac, a film score for a documentary about the structural anthropologist Jean-Pierre Vernon, a stage production dedicated to the poems of Arthur Rimbaud, and a new project about Plato's cave. You can read her more detailed biography in the text description of this podcast. So back to the variations Kervilauen. The parameters of the residency at La Centre du Monde en Belle-Ile designed by Erwan included the following. Each artist would spend a solitary month on the island. We would bring a collection of books that we would read during our stay and then leave behind to add to the library. And finally, we would leave a trace of our experience behind. Marie spent all of her time biking around the island in what she described as a lonely, anxious, and neurotic state swimming and writing diary entries to fight the anxiety and lack of sleep. The one thing she lacked was a piano, so, for better or worse, she was discharged of the requirement of practice. She had not only recently left her job at Radio France, but she had also ended a romantic relationship. In many ways, my experience on the island mirrored hers. For me, Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home to Me recurred as a steady motif, but for Marie, she found Jacques Brel's song Le chanson des vieux amants, repeating as a pathetic mantra. Bien sûr, nous eûmes des orages. Vingt ans d'amour, c'est l'amour folle. Mille fois tu pris ton bagage. Mille fois je pris mon nom. She learned from her work at Radio France about the concept of musical démarquage, or contrafacts as it's called in English, where one keeps the harmonic pattern but then changes the melody, improvising and surfing on the bass. Also, during her sabbatical, she was trying to find her own style on the piano, which manifested in laborious practice of fundamental triads in all major and minor keys. Mixing together her triads with Jacques Brel with her diary souvenirs of Belle-Ile, she came to her first variation. The theme for Vazen begins with this impression of the Brel song, but in G minor instead of C minor. Building on that foundation and including occasional pastiche and quotation, she said, the rest of the pieces came as a fantastic synesthetic film on my brain. And she composed all ten variations in ten days. She decided to name these variations because the entire suite can be seen as a variation on the Jacques Brel song. And she liked the semantic fluidity and adaptability of the word variation. All the titles are named after specific locations emanating from the home base of Kervilauen. The beach at Vazen is protected by cliffs on both sides and is relaxing in the summer months. When she first composed the piece, the left hand drove the theme with a dramatic and fatal edge, while the right hand played the serene role. The dichotomy in this piece and throughout reflects the geography of the island itself. Two references Marie found affinity with are Debussy's prelude 
Le Vent dans la Plaine, and Rachmaninoff's Prelude Opus 32, number 12. After composing a first draft of these variations, Marie reconnected with and consulted with her piano teacher from Genevier Conservatory, Bernard Cavana, who made many suggestions that she adopted. For Vazen, he suggested several reversals of the left theme to the right, and vice versa, which she employs here. Bichet Vazen is on the middle and west of Belle-Ile, just north of Kervilauen. The next composition is titled Le Point du Talu, which is also on the Kervilauen side of the island, but just equally south. At Le Point du Talu, there is a main weather station sitting on the cliffs. There are no beaches at this location, and the rocks and cliffs drop sharply to the sea. There's a reason why they call it the Savage Coast. The waves can be violent, and the drop is quick. Throughout the island, there are no barriers to prevent people from wandering, so if suicide is your motive, then there's nothing but your psychic balance that can stop you. You could easily disappear without a trace, by accident or otherwise. For me, there were certain spots on the coast where you had to respect the appetite of the ocean. La Pointe du Talou is just one of these spots. Emery felt it too. It made perfect sense when she described it as her most tormented piece in C major, in her words twisted and distorted into a nightmare with tritons everywhere. In her notes, she spelled tritons without the E. In music, a tritone is an interval spanning three adjacent whole tones or six adjacent semitones. And in C major, the interval F to B, or the augmented fourth, was characteristic of the interval of evil and bad in the Middle Ages. But triton, spelled without the E in Greek mythology, is the son of Poseidon and Amphitrite and the father of the class of mermaids and mermen, carrying a three-pointed staff or trident. Looking at the sea from La Pointe du Talou, one can imagine that if half people, half fish lived anywhere, 
this is it. But for Marie, she used this locale to reflect her inner state. She said she had to express the brutality bluntly, without compassion or sympathy, because the sea has none. She also noted that the piece had a connection to sexual distress, which led her to reuse the motif in her later piece on Arthur Rimbaud to accompany his poem Mon Triste Courbave à la Poupe, where Rimbaud expresses similar distress, possibly in response to his rape at the age of 17 during the Paris Commune. Working on the piece further, she realized it was inspired by her early interest in Scriabin, in particular Opus 8, Number 2, which she had often played. Scriabin composed music via corresponding colors, and it was the friction of the chromatics that Marie said alerted her to the reference. Again, at Bernard Cavana's suggestion, she transposed the patterns on the right hand into every key, causing even more friction between the close tones, resulting in repetition and rendering it more difficult to play. For the next variation, if you bike due north from Kervilauen, halfway to the northernmost tip of the island, somewhat west of center, you get to moulin en It's an inland non-place, something like a crossroads, as Marie described it. It's definitely not a destination by any means, but more of a pass-through. Picture her on her bike, going round and round, searching for some path of direction on this tiny island, and let the metaphor linger in this liminal space. With repetition of the diminished second on the right hand and the motif of the tritone, or augmented fourth on the left, the chromatic friction continues. And now add actual color. D major is yellow in Marie's synesthetic perception as the sun and its lights, and also the light of Le Grand Fer, the 70-foot lighthouse located in Kervilauen, visible from this location. It's a beacon indicating the path home or to comfort also, now it takes on the color of D major. 
The Vazen triggered the theme of the entire suite. Moulin en Vore is something like a recurring motif. Bernard Cavana, with this piece, forced her to slow down and set her metronome to 50. This created a choral quality of perfect chords with the D major moving to F sharp major. Then, somewhat abruptly, comes another citation, this time from the song Les Visiteurs du Soir, a Marshall Karn film of the same name, set in the Middle Ages about two tricksters sent by the devil to disrupt a marriage. It's a song both sad and beautiful that Marie knew well. Again, in the later Rimbaud project, she used this reference to accompany Rimbaud's poem Ophelia, solidifying this theme of drowning in sadness and despair by adding Shakespeare's tragic character.
The next variation and location is the Grotte de la Potecarie, or the Cave of the Apothecary, which takes us and Marie further north. For nearly all of the variations, she remains on the Savage Coast and not the Continental Coast. The Cave of the Apothecary is the tourist site. Photo signage documenting the 19th century shows nicely dressed people descending the cliff into the cave, which is no longer possible. When I was on the island, I spent some of it waiting for low tide so that I could enter other caves and play the saxophone inside. But I had to watch the tide or I'd get trapped. I would have liked to play inside this one. I only went to the cave of the apothecary once, and since it was a controlled tourist site with gift shops and all that jazz, I was there in the off-season, so it was closed in every sense of the word. For Marie, though, during the summer, it elicited a different response. Imagining back to the days when visitors could descend the stairs, Marie composed this literally with descending and ascending scales mixed with clusters to emulate the fear of falling. Bernard Cavana, Marie admitted, wasn't super excited about this literal interpretation, but she held fast to her instincts and kept it. In the second section, she returns to the G-sharp minor motif, or to her A-flat minor. Though on the keyboard the keys are identical, the distinction for Marie was that while a person who is positive and energetic would hear the key as G-sharp minor, Marie, in her depressive state, heard the notes in A-flat minor. It's kind of like a musical pun. So this, too, is a reflection of her synesthesia. When she later published the written score for the variation, she published the keys in G-sharp minor as a nod to Bernard Cavana's helpful interventions, but she admits that it seems odd when she reads it. Like when I see a red letter G, it just seems wrong, because red is strictly the color of A. The other reason she decided to keep the literal staircase motifs was because this variation was something of a turning point. Its more tender melody returned a feeling of humanity to her after so much aggression and negativity. This was the middle of her experience and, as it turns out, the end of the first half of the variations.
If we agree and divide the variations Cabri-Lawin into two sections, then the next variation, Luke Maria, takes us to the opposite end of the island. Belle-Ile is divided into four villages or communes, Le Palais, Bangor, Sozon, and Luc Maria. Le Palais is the main port of entry, and Bangor is in the relative center, which includes Kervilauen and most of the locales that make up Marie's variations. Sozon is the northern end that includes two exceptions in the Cave of the Apothecary and Les Poulains. Luc Maria is the entire commune at the opposite southern tip. When Marie first played the variations for Erwan Maheo, the artist and our mutual friend and the owner of the house in Kervilauen, where we all lived, he recognized that Marie, in her variations and on her bicycle, zigzagged chaotically across the island. Marie agreed and admitted that she had completely ignored the continental coast, except when she first arrived in Le Palais. By now, I've been to the island a few times, and at first I also focused on the Savage Coast. It's a lot to take in from a new location, and the energy of that side of the island is totally seductive. And by bicycle, too, I noticed that crossing the center from Kervilauen to Le Palais, there are more hills. Even if the distances from Sozon or Loc Maria are further, you can find flatter roads to get there. Cutting through Bangor or heading down to Le Palais, you have to be prepared to make the ascent back up the hill on the return. So for all these reasons, and the narrative and emotive reasons she described to me, I can see why Marie, in her two weeks there, stuck to the side that most reflected her inner experience. And though the island is small, from a comparative geographic point of view, it can get pretty large when you're discovering it for the first time by bicycle. So when Marie decided to bike to Loc Maria from Kervilauen on a hot June day, she arrived with a pretty intense sunburn so she took refuge in the church of the namesake of Loc Maria. Not only did the interior of the church provide the pleasant relief that she needed from the sun, it also put her in a mystic or religious mood. In this variation, she returned to the choral motif that she used in Moulin en Vol. Quoting that phrase from her previous variation, she adapted it as a sort of funeral march in F minor. To her sensibility, it reminded her of a scene from Lucino Visconti's film the Leopard, where a marching band crosses the streets of a Sicilian village in the burning sun playing Verdi's Traviata. She translated this into the organization of her own funeral, caused by sunstroke perhaps. In the second part, she moved into C minor, for her the religious tone par excellence, which is emblematic of Beethoven and his arpeggios and perfect chords. Rather than religious experience, Bernard Cavana asked if Marie hadn't taken mushrooms. The sun and the relief in the metaphor of the church had provided all of the hallucinogens she needed. So this variation is more named after the church than the commune.
Tai Nehu, the next variation, takes us back to Bangor and the environs of Kervilauen. When Marie played the rough draft for Bernard, he told her that we, the audience, were getting fed up with the tritone motif, played quickly and obsessively. He asked her to come up with something else. So after his criticism, the next day she played him a new version with the tritone intact, but this time with the mute pedal depressed. He laughed at both her sense of humor and her determination, and, well, that's the way the piece remains. Ty Nehu, Marie learned later in the Breton language, which has many Gaelic references, means simply small place. There's a bunch of places in Brittany that have the same name. Like moulin en it's a tiny area where one can get lost in the circle of it. So the song ends up being something like a summoning of an escape route with the chromatics going up and down to the end of the keyboard, with the final two tritones making something akin to an alarm sound, like a rescue vehicle in the distance. In this second half of the variations, you can hear she's slowly rescuing herself. Les Poulains, the next variation, takes us back to the other extreme end, Sozon again, at the very tip, even further out than the cave of the apothecary. Les Poulains is the end of the island where the actress Sarah Bernhardt made her home in the early 20th century. On a sunny day, it's totally pleasant and serene. Along with the Sarah Bernhardt house, which is just architecturally bland on the outside, but turned into a museum on the inside, is a tiny lighthouse a similar size to the one in Loc Maria at the other end of the island, but a miniature in comparison to Le Grand Fer in Kervilauen. Today, this little lighthouse has its roof covered in solar panels, taking advantage of the glorious sunlight at this end of the island. When Marie visited this place, she caught it on a day when the sea was calm and the sky was clear and the wind was pleasant. Using her diary as her guide, this composition came out more peaceful. 
A minor is a clear tonal and more serene key for Marie, like C major is, but with more melancholy and nostalgia. For me, too, letters and the musical notes they represent synesthetically can take on not only moody characteristics, but also personalities. Marie's selection of which keys to compose in, like Olivier Messiaen, who chose according to the colors he saw, is often synesthetically determined. Towards the end, A minor shifts to A flat minor, again that opposite yet similar G sharp minor. Marie introduces a quotation from Ligeti's study La Tombe à Varsovie, and continues to recycle the motif she used in both Moulin en Vore and Le Point du Talou with its chromatics and tritones, even if weak and low as if slowly being erased and neutralized, a sign of restoration.
The next piece, Le Ile du Diable, has the most historical and narrative reference in the suite, but thematically still links into her themes. And incidentally, Bernard Cavana tried to encourage her narrative tendencies and discourage the more psychological narration that she was focused on, but she took his comments in stride and built the suite in tune with her diary. But in Ile du Diable, she must have had enough distance from her emotional distress to think historically and get outside of herself. She focused instead on two different, though related, points of entry. One was the Dreyfus Affair, which was inspired by her listening to a France culture broadcast. When Alfred Dreyfus was exiled, he was imprisoned on Ile du Diable from 1895 to 1899. This island off the coast of Guyana served as a political prison, much like the Ustica, the island prison near Sicily where Antonio Gramsci was hidden. Ile du Diable is the only variation not included on the island of Belle-Ile. So the word variation comes into play with the contents of what Marie was thinking about during her experience in Kervilauen. More so than the terrestrial geography, what determines inclusion in the suite is its relation to her cranial landscape. But even though the name doesn't refer to Belle-Ile, the other reference that does is the historic prison that is on Belle-Ile that housed the infamous Man in the Iron Mask, if not the real one, then at least the one in Alexandre Dumas' novels, in addition to the revolutionary political prisoner Auguste Blanqui. It also housed a children's penitentiary. All of these were inside the Citadel Vauban, which is the island's biggest historical attraction. In fact, the island is riddled with military establishments as it was vulnerable between England and France. The citadel and some of the other armaments, like those in Taliefer, were built by the French, but taken over by Germany in its occupation in World War II, who then perforated the island with bunkers and blockhouses, turning it into a maze of concrete tunnels. But it was the haute Belange or the children's penitentiary, that captured Marie's imagination. She remembered hearing a song by Jacques Prévert and Joseph Cosma titled La Chance à l'Enfant about the unsuccessful escape of a child from a prison located on an island who tries to swim to the continent but is dogged and captured by the police. This song, Marie discovered, was inspired by a rebellion of the children in the very same penitentiary on Belle-Ile that was still active during the years that Prévert and Cosma composed their song. Prévert also made a film titled Le Fleur de l'Age about this uprising and the Belle-Ile prison. Marie remembered, though without understanding the story of the song by Prévert and Cosma, singing it by heart as a child. So in the end, she said she composed the piece as a medley of the imprisonment of Alfred Dreyfus and the rebellion of the children. Though the previous variations in the suite were starting to get more serene and restorative, this one returns to the fear, anxiety, and violence that corresponded to Marie's mental state of isolation, but this time those feelings were located outside of herself. Building on the pastiche and quotation method she'd already employed, she added another, this time from a standard composed by a French jazz drummer named Eldo Romano called Il Camino, the path, like many of those she circled on her bicycle. The French singer Claude Nogaro put lyrics to the song and called it rhymes, which Marie also used to sing. In her adaptation of the song, she inserts her G minor key, which she started Vazen and the entire variation's Kervilauen suite with, and reintroduces elements of the Jacques Brel song, starting to bring it all back home.
Remember at the beginning she mentioned the technique of keeping the harmonic pattern of the song and improvising over the bass? Well, it's no surprise that she's cycling back with a jazz reference. The last location and the last variation in the suite prior to the epilogue returns to Gulfar, which is not only the location of Le Grand Fer, it is also the location of the coast closest to Kervilauen. And it's also the area where the Australian Impressionist painter John Peter Russell built his home for 20 years in the late 1800s, and where Claude Monet, Auguste Rodin, and Henry Matisse, among other painters, all but Monet, were invited by Russell to experiment with color, impressions, and moods of the dramatic landscape. The subject of my book, Letters to Polly, Jean-Francois Hippolyte Guillaume, otherwise known as Polly, spent much of his time in Gulfar and its environs, and, as far as I'm trying to make certain, owned the house that I and Marie stayed in, which is now owned by Erwan. So due to proximity, Gulfar is also the site that many of us chose to say goodbye to the island from, before we returned to the continent. This was the case for Marie. She tried to capture the melancholy of the moment. Though she wouldn't describe her experience as a vacation or restful, it was an intense one, and one that she'd grown a lot from confronting herself. She chose a B tone to start this piece, the only time she used this tone in the variations. In 2010, when I played my saxophone in the bass of Le Grand Fer, I started with a low B flat. It was the deepest, most guttural sound I could produce, and it played well in the acoustics of the 70-foot-tall lighthouse. Marie found melancholy in that tone, so she looked for a melody to capture that feeling of departure. After reminiscing a bit, kind of like a deep dive, she called it, she found her melody in B-flat minor. And that, at least on a tenor saxophone, is the deepest dive one can take. On piano, she found herself walking on the left hand and playing chords on the right, creating something with a more Hollywood feel. She kept the deep B-flat to the end, leaving the key down and maintaining the pedal to let the note resonate to its natural end. Rather than saying goodbye to the island, she saw this as a way to make the island say goodbye to her.
When Marie completed these variations, she played them to Erwan Maheo, who invited her to have this experience in the first place. He responded by saying that he could see things from the island in her music. It reminded him somewhat of Rousseau's paintings and also of Carla Blay's music, which flattered Marie. He picked up on the relationship between the way Marie had traveled on her bicycle and the various titles she had given. And when she told him the entire piece was called Kervilauen, she realized she had fulfilled his dreams for Le Centre du Monde. Before I play Marie's epilogue, another part of this that I find interesting and informs you a bit of Marie's virtuosity is that when she played the rough draft for her previous teacher and mentor, Bernard Cavana, he was surprised when she sat at his piano without a score. When he asked her for the score that he wanted to follow along with, she told him, what your head remembers is good, the rest you forget. And then she played the complete variations Kerbilauen for him. When I met Marie the first time in 2014, she was playing variations Kerbilauen at the opening of the exhibition at the Frack, still without a score. The recordings I played for you are from December of 2007, made at her alma mater, Genevieve Conservatory. And it wasn't until 10 years after that, in 2018, that she wrote and published a score with her friend Sebastian Troster, who worked for a music publisher. Here is the epilogue, which returns directly to the Jacques Brel theme that inspired it all. To my ear, it sounds cinematic, conclusive, and melodic. In other words, a summation, a restoration, and ultimately, a return to power. In Marie's closing notes to me about these songs, she wrote, And that's all. Here we are. Indeed, we are here. She also recently had a live performance at Atelier du Plateau in Paris on April 7, 2019, where she played Variations Kervilauen, a piece by Philip Glass, and her new piece about Plato's Cave. 
To listen to Variations Carry Lowen without my interruptions, go to part two of this podcast. This music is not available anywhere else. You can't buy it or download it. It's here just as a result of my friendship with Marie, and in turn, it's exclusive to you. I'm David Colosi, and you've been listening to the Napping Wizard Sessions. Special thanks to Brick in Brooklyn, where this was recorded, the home of Brooklyn Free Speech Radio. Tune in again for something else.